first scripture reading is from the book of Daniel, chapter 9, verses 20 to 27. As uh, we return to a a mini-series, I suppose you might call it, on uh, a few things to do with the doctrine of the last things, um, eschatology, as it's known. And uh, so there'll be a few sermons, uh, Lord willing, on that. And uh, Daniel 9, our first reading in that connection. This is 20 to 27. Now while I was speaking and praying and confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and presenting my supplication before the Lord my God in behalf of the holy mountain of my God, while I was still speaking in prayer, then the man Gabriel whom I had seen in the vision previously, came to me in my extreme weariness about the time of the evening offering. And he gave me instruction and talked with me and said, O Daniel, I have now come forth to give you insight with understanding. At the beginning of your supplications, the command was issued, and I have come to tell you, for you are highly esteemed, so give heed to the message and gain understanding of the vision. Seventy weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. So you are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince... There will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. It will be built again with plaza and moat, even in times of distress. Then after the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. And its end will come with a flood. Even to the end, there will be war. Desolations are determined. And he will make a firm covenant with the many for one week. But in the middle of the week, he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering. And on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate, even until a complete destruction, one that is decreed, is poured out on the one who makes desolate. Would you then turn please to 1 John chapter 2. And the text for the sermon, 1 John 2, verses 18 to 24. 1 John 2, from verse 18. Children, it is the last hour. And just as you heard that Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have arisen. From this we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out in order that it might be shown that they all are not of us. 
but you have an anointing from the Holy One, and you all know. I have not written to you because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, the one who denies the Father and the Son. Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father. The one who confesses the Son has the Father also. As for you, let that abide in you which you heard from the beginning. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, you also will abide in the Son and in the Father. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you for your faithfulness that neither you nor your word can ever fail. And therefore we can believe all that you teach us in your word. We can rely on all your good promises, even in times of tribulation and grief. And we thank you for that confidence that you have given to us in Jesus' name. Amen. Covenant people of God, one of the major themes in the discussion of the end times is that of the Antichrist and his identity. And uh, since we are looking at a bit of a mini-series on that subject of the last things, it would be remiss to ignore this subject. The word uh, Antichrist itself is used five times in the New Testament, either in the singular or the plural form, mostly in the singular but uh, it is used uh, that five times, and they're all in the writings of John in his epistles. The term is not found at all as such in the Old Testament, although there are many who see Daniel's abomination of desolation as referring to the Antichrist, and you can also perhaps find a shadow of this Antichrist language in Psalm 2, Uh, where you get this language of those rulers and so on who are against anti-God's anointed, the Christ, anti-Christ. So you do get some hint of that in Psalm 2. And then there are other parts of the New Testament as well that don't use the term anti-Christ but do appear to have some connection, uh, such as 2 Thessalonians 2 Uh, particularly verses 3 and 4, speaking about the man of lawlessness. Uh, For many, this is um, regarded as something that has to do with a particularly evil individual, one who is going to control the nations of the world just before the end of the world. For others, the Antichrist is seen as a series of individuals or even whole system Uh, such as the papacy and Romanism, uh, and there are different theories on just uh, which system or individual or individuals that could apply to. And so with such a wide variety of views as we find on this matter, as with most aspects of uh, eschatology, even among Reformed people, it can be rather hard to be dogmatic when it comes to the identity of the Antichrist. Uh, If you do get the time and you're interested to look it up, there's a short 
uh, Ligonier Ministries uh, devotion on the subject of the Antichrist. And uh, while it is certainly a helpful little devotion, it does appear to raise more questions than it gives answers. And uh, maybe that's the case with most devotions or studies or commentaries on this subject. But let us see what we can learn from our text on this difficult matter. Three points. First of all, the identity of the Antichrist. Secondly, the arrival of the Antichrist. And thirdly, the Christian response to the Antichrist. His identity, his arrival and our response to this information. In the first place, then, I want to start by giving a sort of a general description from this passage, a general description of the Antichrist or Antichrists, plural, because uh, both singular and plural are here in this passage. And there are three things that are emphasised in describing the Antichrist or Antichrists. Uh, One of those is that they go out from us. A second one is that they lie And a third one is that they deny, they deny the Lord Jesus. First then, the fact that they went out from us, verse 19. It appears that this category refers to those who had been church members, but who broke with the church, and by breaking with the church, they did, of course, in doing so, show their hostility to the Lord of the church, whose body and bride The church is, if you break with the body of Christ and you break with the bride of Christ, you break with Christ himself. Indeed, John writes that this is something that happened in the Lord's providence. It happened according to the Lord's will. It wasn't some accident of fate that the Lord then had to make some response to. This is something that occurred according to his will so that it would be obvious to the church, it would be clear that those people were never really of us in the first place. Now this afternoon, Lord willing, as I mentioned, we're going to be looking a little bit uh, with a bit more focus on the doctrine of the perseverance or preservation of the saints. And as you may know, there are many people around and have been throughout history who say, Simple empirical observation makes it clear that the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints is wrong. Because, they argue, don't you know that there are people who leave the church? They go out from us. And some of them, as far as we can tell, die in their sins. And so, given that observation, they argue, how can you say, once a Christian, always a Christian, that Christians persevere or things of that kind. Well, um, I would like to uh, point out here that um, I don't want to go into it in great detail. I'll say more this afternoon. But these words here in this verse actually teach, they do not undermine or deny, they teach the perseverance of the saints. These verses teach that those who leave, finally, are not and in the full sense of the word, have never been saints. And those who remain abide because the Lord is with them. They persevere. And so there's no uh, conflict there with the teaching of preservation of the saints. Um, a second thing that is said about antichrists is that they lie. Verses 21 and 22. The lie in view here is heresy. 
Doctrinal errors, lies of the devil. Those who have the anointing of the Holy Spirit, that is to say those who are born again, given the gift of faith, given the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit in their lives, they know and believe the truth and they are committed to the truth. And they are by that also enabled to test the spirits, as John says in 1 John 4 verses 1 to 6, one of the other big passages on the Antichrist or Antichrists. Those who uh, have this, the, the Spirit's work in their life in this way are able to recognise what is of God and what is from false prophets and from false teachers and so forth. They're able to tell what comes out of the Spirit of the Antichrist. 1 John 4 verse 3. And that's not to say that as Christians we can't make mistakes. As we have our Bible studies and uh, we try to interpret the scripture, you sometimes get all sorts of ideas coming up. Or as you think about it yourself, we are capable of misinterpreting passages of the scripture. And we are are even capable of a certain amount of error. Even as mature Christians, you are capable of a certain amount of error in doctrine. But nevertheless, underlying that in the true believer, there is a firm and a strong commitment from the heart to the truth. Every Christian has that. Whereas in the case of those who are of the Antichrist and the spirit of the Antichrist, they have a commitment instead to lies. Their commitment from the heart is to heresies and lies. And though it is true that they may get some things right in a technical sense, just as we get some things wrong, nevertheless, their commitment is to the lie and they cannot do or be otherwise. Uh, Third, closely related, antichrists deny Christ. Verse 22, who is the liar but the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ? The one who denies the Father and the Son rather than confessing them. Verse 23, the ones who deny that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. 1 John 4 verse 2, and then yet one of the other passages that speaks of uh, Antichrist to John verse 7. This implies, this kind of language implies a denial of the fundamental doctrines of the Trinity and of the two natures of the Lord Jesus Christ, that he is both fully God and fully man. Of course, there are are other fundamental truths that if you deny them, then you cannot be regarded as a Christian. But certainly these truths that are singled out about the Lord Jesus Christ, these lie at the very Uh, base of the foundation they lie lie at the heart of the gospel in connection with this I'd also like you to consider the prefix anti that is built into the word antichrist anti means against antichrist means that they are against Christ It means that they are the opposite of what the Lord Jesus Christ is like. Christians are being transformed into the likeness of Jesus Christ. Antichrists are not like the Lord Jesus Christ. They are against that even more strongly. They are opposed to the Lord Jesus himself as well as to his people for for everything connected with him. 
Now, of course, all non-Christians are the opposite of Christ-like. And all non-Christians are opposed to him, at least in the sense of ignoring him and rejecting him. But here John is singling out a particular group about whom the readers had um, heard that they were coming. So these are not, this is not talking about your average unbeliever. This is a particular group that is being singled out, as verse 18 shows. And that implies that this group is one that is more vehemently, vehemently opposed to the Lord Jesus Christ than your average unbeliever. Putting this together, we get a kind of a composite picture of former church members who have become especially opposed to the Lord Jesus Christ, to the truth of the Lord Jesus Christ, and to the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Those who more actively promote heresy and try by that to destroy the true church. People like false prophets and false teachers would be included. Perhaps also political leaders who have a an especially big axe to grind against the church. If you look around the world today, you can find plenty of those leaders who seem more intent than usual on acting against God's church. Uh, Many countries are having to do with that. And there we can think in that terms, uh, uh, those terms of what Revelation teaches, the book of Revelation teaches about these things. Many identify these antichrists with the beasts in Revelation, the beast from the sea and the beast from the earth. Which beasts represent in those visions, in the first case, political, powerful political forces trying to use compulsion to destroy the church, and then the beast from the sea, from the earth rather, uh, false religions and ideologies and philosophies also arrayed against the church by Satan. And so perhaps in general terms, that is what John is talking about here. Individuals, some of whom have been in the church, but who are trying with their heresies and their errors to destroy the church, political leaders who for whatever reason really hate Christians, really hate the name of Christ, and are bending over backwards to destroy God's people. For it may well be that these three aspects of Antichrist described here are not three uh, criteria that must all be present in any individual for them to be called an Antichrist, but rather three separate ways in which the spirit of the Antichrist may manifest itself. It may manifest itself, the spirit of the Antichrist, in people who have left the church, in political leaders who hate the church, and also in false religions, ideologies, and philosophies. Whichever way you want to take it, and it's possible to read these things in different ways, their existence, the existence of Antichrists, is significant enough to warrant this warning, especially in John's epistles. Uh, John wrote uh, pretty late, uh, according to uh, the view of uh, many uh, who look at these things. Uh, John wrote his epistles very late in the piece, the last of the apostles to die, and uh, 
possibly died around the turn of the century, in fact, uh, quite late, an old man. Well, in the second place, we address the question of when to expect Antichrist, his arrival. John says that his readers knew that they were now in the last hour because many Antichrists had already appeared. For they had heard that Antichrist would come in the last days and therefore when John says now you see all those Antichrists around, you know this is the last days, it is the last hour. Keeping in mind that the last days refer in the New Testament to the whole time between Jesus' first and second coming. Not just some end time close to the end of the world. That is very, very clear and evident from 1 Peter 1 verse 20, verses I mentioned the other week, Hebrews 1 verse 2, and here in 1 John 2 verse 18, which show that in the New Testament it was already regarded as the last days. There is no doubt about that from those verses. It was even regarded as the last hour already. And yet, at the same time, there are also parts of the New Testament that speak of the last day in terms of something coming at the very end. Uh, Matthew 24, verse 36, for example. So the last day is the last hour from Christ's first coming right through to the last day at the very end of the world. And from this, it is clear that we can expect antichrists in our own present day, and they are alive and well and living in also at this present time. Not something for the far future, but something already here that we have to address. Those who fit the description of the text, in other words. And indeed, all of the references to Antichrist in the New Testament, 1 John 2, verses 18 and 22, chapter 4, verse 3, 2 John verse 7, all of these verses seem far more interested in the many antichrists and how we deal with them than they do in one great antichrist. And that also is very clear when you read those passages. Is there then any significant distinction between the one antichrist and the many antichrists? Well, there we have what is probably the most difficult question in connection with this issue. And without wanting to be unduly uh, dogmatic about this, I would like to put forward a way of tying the various scripture passages together, and it's essentially the same as the approach you'll find uh, taken in that uh, devotion I mentioned by Ligonier on Antichrist. And it goes right back, though we could go further, but it goes back to Daniel chapters 9 to 11 in your uh, outline, by the way, there's an error there I've put down uh, verses, uh, chapter 7 to 9. It should be 9 to 11, not 7 to 9. And Daniel 9 to 11 is basically about the coming of the Greek ruler in, uh, based in Syria, the Greek ruler Antiochus Epiphanes, or Antiochus Epiphanes as some people say. A leader who captured Jerusalem and stripped the Jerusalem temple bare forbade all sacrifices to Yahweh and then offered pigs on altars to the Greek god Zeus around uh, Jerusalem and out in the countryside as well. The one referred to 
in terms of the abomination of desolation because he did those things. Matthew 24 verses 15 and 16 also speaks of the abomination of desolation and speaks of it as something that was also coming to Jerusalem, to Judea, after Jesus' time. But note that that part of Matthew 24, verses 15 and 16, that early part of the chapter, is the part that is talking about the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70 on the part of the Romans, where again, the temple was profaned and destroyed by pagan idolaters. Some also think that the man of lawlessness in 2 Thessalonians 2, the son of destruction who takes his seat in the temple of God, is talking about the same event, what the Romans did in AD 70 in the Jerusalem city and temple. Uh, This uh, book, 2 Thessalonians, written less than uh, 20 years, less than 20 years away from that destruction in 70 AD. Now, whether or not that is all that 2 Thessalonians 2 is talking about, and it certainly is using that Daniel 9 to 11 type language, whether or not that's all it is talking about, it does, uh, some of the description there seems larger than that. But there is no wonder from this that the church after AD 70 still expected another Antichrist. And John writing after AD 70, after Jerusalem destroyed, says, you've heard this, you heard that Antichrist is coming. Well, we know that Antichrist has come because you can see all of these Antichrists around you today. Uh, This, uh, and by the way, he doesn't use the word the when he speaks of the Antichrist. He just simply says Antichrist without the word the. And uh, that is a way in the Greek language sometimes uh, used to express a general quality or characteristic of something rather than a particular individual. So it is possible to read this as saying, you've heard that this kind of antichrist character is coming. It has come. Look what happened in Jerusalem a few years back. And look around you right now and see what's happening now. And there's no doubt about antichrist. There's no doubt about this opposition, this fierce opposition to the Christ. In any event, whichever way you want to take it, from that point on in the text, John does not say anything more about one individual and what to look for or what to expect about some great antichrist. But he speaks from then on about the many antichrists who are already present and he speaks of them as ones who fulfill the Antichrist expectation. Notice the wording here. Uh, Just as you heard that Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have appeared. Just as, this was your expectation, Antichrist, now see how that expectation is being fulfilled in the many antichrists around us. And the rest of the text then goes on to talk about them, plural. Likewise, 1 John 4, verses 1 to 6, about testing the spirits, plural. 
to identify those, plural, who have the spirit of the Antichrist. And 2 John verse 7, speaking about the deceivers, plural. Those who don't acknowledge the Lord Jesus. And then John says, speaking about those people, he says, this is the deceiver and the Antichrist, singular. He identifies the singular with the plural. And Revelation, the book of Revelation then caps that off with the symbol of beasts who represent all such antichrists during the whole time of the last days until the Lord Jesus returns. One thing very clear from this. There's always been opposition to God's anointed even before he came into this world. Psalm 2. From the time of the fall to Antiochus Epiphanes, to AD 70, to the present, and there will be that opposition until the day the Lord Jesus returns. The spirit of the Antichrist comes from the devil, who increased his hostility at the time when the Lord Jesus was born, and even though he has been defeated on the cross, he doesn't admit that, and he will continue that hostility until the day the Lord Jesus returns. John is more interested in us responding to the antichrists we face now than speculating about one particular individual who may or may not come in the future. As we find with those who uh, look for extraordinary demonic activity today, and they're always looking for that. Or those who are always looking for extraordinary miracles, extraordinary gifts for God's people today. So also with those who focus on an extraordinary antichrist and they're always looking around trying to figure out which world leader or religious leader of the day is that one antichrist. In all of these cases, people may lose their focus on the daily calling of the Christian. And the daily calling of the Christian is to live in simple obedience to God using the regular gifts that we have been giving, given while resisting the daily temptations of the devil and all those who serve him. That leads on then to our response to the Antichrist or to the Antichrists who are already here or the ones for that matter that we may find in the future. Our response indeed to the spirit of the Antichrist. Our third and final point. Three main responses are implied. And they are all regular, daily duties and calling. First, recognise them. Recognise antichrists. Test the spirits. They went out from us to show they are not all of us. But you all know because you have an anointing from the Holy One. Verses 19 and 20. These are things we can know and that God is showing us. And therefore he enables you to test the spirits. 1 John 4 verse 1. You can know the spirit of truth over against the spirit of error, the spirit of antichrist. And you can know it from whether those people listen to us, as John puts it, that is whether they listen to the church, whether they listen to the truth that is confessed by the church or not. 1 John 4 verse 6. Watch yourself 
and watch yourselves, your church, against such deceivers. 2 John verse 7. And you see, this is not just a matter of spotting some spectacular heresy when it comes knocking at your front door to hand out a a glossy magazine or otherwise on on Armageddon or something of that kind. The beast from the sea and the beast from the earth involve the use of force or compulsion against the church. So we have constantly to be alert to pressure to obey man rather than God. Limitations on the church in its evangelism, in its preaching, what it can say from the pulpit, in its counselling, what it can say to people who come for help from the community, whether that will be on marriage or gender or any other aspect of ethics. And even for that matter, the church must carefully weigh up restrictions that come in different countries around the world here too regarding COVID-19, weighing up those restrictions always with this in mind that we are to obey God first and yes, certainly to obey authority set over us, but God comes first and those things always have to be tested, test the spirits. That's the compulsion side, the beast from the sea, but also the beast from the earth, the worldly ideologies and philosophies and so on, which always drip in the church when they're reigning in the world. Feminism, which a few years ago we would have said we have nothing to do that, but ask yourself the question, has feminism dripped in our church? Has it affected things? I would suggest it has. The breaking down of God-given authority structures between parents and children and the application of biblical parental discipline. When it first comes up, we all disagree with it, but does it affect the church? Does it drip? I would suggest that it does. Western individualism, Western materialism, the Western idol of entertainment. It rains in the church. Does it drip in the world? Does it drip? in the church, in the styles of worship and so on, I would suggest that it does. And the attack on marriage, on God's creation of male and female and only those two genders. Reigns in the world, does it drip in the church? Climate change ideologies, reigns in the world, or in that case perhaps it's a drought, but it reigns in the world, does it drip in the church? Again, test the spirits. Second response, in some ways this is the most important part of all, it's very simple and straightforward in a way that we keep on confessing the Lord Jesus as God, man, Messiah, Lord and Saviour. Whatever you do, do not deny him. On the contrary, confess him and keep on confessing him. Confess the triune God. For if we deny him, He also will deny us at the end. 2 Timothy 2 verse 12. That's the warning. And of all the things that antichrists do, in some ways that is the most dangerous and the most serious that attempt to draw us away from the confession of Jesus Christ. And then the third response, and it's closely related, and this is not just implied, this is something openly stated in verse 24. Let that abide in you which you heard from the beginning. Error doesn't usually come in overnight. It seeps in 
It creeps in bit by bit. People go through stages. They go from being strongly opposed to some error at first, to unhappily tolerating it, to not agreeing with it, but not really caring that much, to finally accepting it. That's the process. Perhaps each of us can examine ourselves and think of things that we used to feel strongly about in our church life, things in the past, which we now accept or tolerate. And you can see from that how susceptible we are to such things. How much more might change in the years ahead? No, stick to what you have heard from the beginning and stay on the old paths. We're supposed to be a confessional church. And we keep to what we have sworn to uphold and abide in those things, abide in the truth that we confess. And if you do that, if you abide in that and keep on confessing the Christ of the Scriptures and remain alert to attempts to either force or to lure you from that path, then it doesn't matter whether there is one Antichrist or whether there are many Antichrists And it doesn't matter whether it is now or whether it is in the future. For whichever it is, you will be ready in the Lord's strength and in his truth. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, would you keep us from speculating about details of how the spirit of Antichrist will manifest itself in the future? Help us to concentrate in the present on recognising error and sin, false prophets, false teachers, all the work of the spirit of the Antichrist. And Father, will you give us the ability and the strength to avoid following their lies, but rather enable us to continue to confess your son and to follow the paths that have been laid down in your word from long ago. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Christian hope to which we press is a certain hope. For uh, we are endued with every needed grace. The Lord does not leave us alone in these things. Psalter Hymnal 398. We will stand to sing. And would you please remain standing for the blessing and doxology. 398.